0: Welcome to the Wealthsteading Podcast. This is episode 188. Today is June 11th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. In today's episode, I want to focus on sort of a very high-level market review. You know, we're looking at a time when overall global economic conditions are very sketchy. And at the same time, the S&P 500 is at near record highs. So at a high level, I want to talk a little bit about this. And then what I really want to focus on is the performance of Bitcoin over the past eight months or so. You see, if you haven't been paying attention to Bitcoin, right now it's at about a 22-month high. I think there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about that. Before we do, though, I just want to say I do appreciate all the questions that keep coming in. I do read each one of them. I try and consolidate them into topics that we cover here on the podcast I also appreciate the many of you that keep encouraging me to do more episodes and more material. My goal for this year was to do three episodes a week. We're halfway into the year, and obviously I haven't met that objective. My diet isn't working out so well either. In any case, I have a stack full of questions and comments and things like that that I that want to answer that will, will be the future of upcoming episodes. And in fact, I'm working on a really special project that was the inspiration of a really good friend of this podcast. I recently had the opportunity to have dinner with him and and his wonderful wife, and he brought up the subject of what it would be like to be retired and have the opportunity to take advantage of last-minute discounted cruises. Now, while I appreciate everybody's concerns and questions about building their wealth, I also really like the prospects of investigating and looking into and studying the viability of fun topics like taking a cruise. So that's definitely on my agenda. I do need to check with my CPA and see how that would work out as a business expense. But in any case, stock, I just wanted to give you a shout out and wanted to let you know that I will be researching that topic. So hey, let's get down to business here. Right now, the S&P 500 is only about 1.5% from its all-time record high, while at the same time we've seen major improvement in commodities like you know, corn, petroleum, and then even the small-cap funds like you would track through the Russell 2000. It's done extremely well. You Remember that the small-cap stocks have been lagging. That's been one of my major concerns. They didn't get above their 100-day moving average till oh, about the end of March they've definitely been lagging behind the blue chip stocks although in recent weeks they performed very well but unlike the S&P 500 the Russell 2000 is like i don't know 11 12% off of its 52 week high so it still has a lot of room to make up and this is at a time when market indicators are all over the map And what I mean by that is that I can sit here and make a very solid case for why the S&P 500 could rally from where it's at now and go up to, say, 2,300 points. Some of that rationale would be the fact that oil prices have recovered, and this is really kind of a Goldilocks economy right now. We have oil that's right around $50 a barrel. That's enough to keep the energy sector from going bankrupt, but at the same time, it's significantly lower than oil was two years ago, and so it's still good for the consumer. Interest rates are a similar story. Right now, interest rates are, you know, we've been talking about historic lows, but they keep going lower. Obviously, in many nations, there are negative rates, but in the U.S., U.S. rates, a 10-year treasury hovering around 1.6%. While that's not good for savers, that does keep the easy money flowing so that the major corporations can do their balance sheet engineering and consumers and governments can keep spending like drunk congressmen. The also positive part of that argument when it comes to low interest rates and its negative impact on savers, one argument that can be made there is if you look at real interest rates, not the nominal rate. But if you factor in inflation, or in this case, the the low rate of inflation, or in some cases, the lack of inflation, well, actually, if you factor that in, interest rates may not be as far off historical norms as what we are all led to believe or, or what we feel like we're experiencing. People always remember back to the good old days, and they say, hey, in the 70s, you know, my certificate of deposit was paying, uh, you know, 15%. Well, that was probably the case, but at the same time, inflation was probably 17%, so you really were losing 2% of your money in real terms. Now, I'm not saying I totally go along with this argument. Don't send me emails telling me that the GDP growth and the inflation rate and unemployment, that those numbers are all fake and made up. Hey, I get that. I'm just telling you, when I look at the numbers, I can see some truths in both ends of the story. And the fact that real interest rates are not incredibly far off of historic norms is actually true. I won't get into it in this episode. In fact, I I probably do need to dedicate a, a whole series to it. But if you remember in the 1970s, there was a a term coined that was called stagflation. That's when they had incredible amounts of inflation, and at the same time, the U.S. economy was stagnant. Well, if I could coin a term to describe what type of economy I think we're in right now, the best term I could probably come up with would be deflationary stagflation. And what I mean by that is we are definitely in a stagnant economy, not only in the U.S., but globally. We're going to talk about that a little bit at a high level in this episode today. And then also, there are a lot of arguments that can be made that we are experiencing both unprecedented amounts of not only inflation, but also deflation. So inflation is definitely a real and present danger. There are specific elements of the economy that are eating up a lot of your paycheck, and that's why you feel that things are greatly inflated. But at the same time, there were also elements of the economy that have totally deflated. And in a lot of ways, that's great for you as a consumer, but it's also hurt specific industries. I mean, think about if your job was to print up telephone books. Well, if you were a printer in that type of industry or in the, in the paper industry or the forest products that serve that multi-billion-dollar industry, well, you know that technology took away your job. Now, it made the cost of making a phone call and not having to use things like operators and telephone books and all those things obsolete, and it saved the consumer a lot of money, made things a lot more convenient for us. So from that side of things, we have seen deflationary pressures. It's helped all of our lives as consumers, but it's also hurt specific and large elements of the economy. So deflationary stagflation, I think that's where we're at. I think that's where things are going to continue. I'm digressing here, but that's really the mixed bag of this economy we're in. So right now we see the U.S. markets pretty close to all-time highs. We see low unemployment, and many people are clamoring for a rally in this market and for it to go higher because they see such good things propelling it like low interest rates. But at the same time, I could make as compelling or even probably more of a compelling argument why this market should drop down to 1,600 on the S&P 500. And it has to do with a lot of those very same reasons. The fact that the 10-year treasury is at 1.64% this week, the reason it's that low is because it needs to be there to generate the cheap money that consumers need to keep going out and taking subprime loans on automobiles and buying their houses that they can't afford and to allow the corporations to continue to buy back their stocks. These low interest rates aren't indicative of a good economy, they're the result of a bad economy. And as low as they are here in the U.S., many parts of the developed world, they're negative. We've seen the the, uh, European Central Bank go negative, we've seen Japan go negative, and that causes their malinvestments to come to the United States. Even though our economy is doing relatively well, we're so much head and shoulders above everybody else that they're exporting their deflation to us. That's why we see extremely low interest rates. That's why we see stock markets at all-time record highs, even though earnings have declined for 17, 18 months. And now maybe with the rise in oil prices, we're seeing corporate profits at least start to level out. But certainly we're at such high price per earnings ratios because money from around the world is flocking into the United States. Money goes where it's treated best. So again, while that can be an argument that, hey, this market's going to keep rising, we're going to see the rally continue. On the other hand, you can look at the underlying facts that the reason all this is occurring is because the economy is so fragile and any little shock to the system could bring this house of cards down. That would be my argument for why we could see this market drop down to 1,600 points in the S&P 500. These counter arguments can be made throughout the economy. The price of oil did get up slightly on West Texas Intermediate, a little bit above $50, you know, 51-some dollars a barrel. Well, now it's back below 49. As I've been talking about for a couple years now, there's a cap on how high oil can go because of the versatility of the shale oil revolution. For the most part, we have, you know, 2,000 wells out there that are in mothballs right now, but the pipe is in the ground, and they really just need to open up some valves. Share oil in and of itself, it does not take the billions of dollars and the decades of exploration and infrastructure that, that, uh, you know, like deep, deep water oil takes. And so I know many of you will argue, yeah, well, those wells just don't produce like old traditional wells. No, they don't. But they also don't cost anywhere near as much. And there's so many of them and the potential reserve amount not only in the United States, but really in all types of locations around the globe that haven't historically been natural gas or petroleum producers are now opened up to that technology. So it's a whole new ball game of of swing volume production, and that's capping the price of oil. We've seen it rise up now, you know, in the in the past few months because of the wildfires we had in, in Western Canada, and then because of. Uh, most recently, all the militant problems, uh, military-type problems they're having, sabotage problems they're having in Nigeria. I've always said that shorting oil is a risky thing because there can always be a supply disruption, and that will make the price of oil go up. But look at where it's gone to, $50, $51 a barrel. Two years ago, we were at 120 So even a major uh, militaristic threat in Nigeria that's threatening to take, say, 500 million barrels a day off the market, it really has hardly budged the price of oil. And as oil gets up around that $50 a barrel mark, it just encourages these shale oil operations that have have been forced to shut down to come back online. So that's going to keep a cap on oil pricing. Gold is another critical part of this economy that so many people have been arguing that with all the money printing, with the negative interest rates, with all the central central bank intervention, that gold was going to go back on. You know, even if it didn't hit the, the record highs that it did in 2011, you know, people were calling for for right now or for into this summer that we were going to see gold at you know $1,500 or more an ounce. Well, you remember a few months ago? I didn't believe any of that. I shorted gold. I did get stopped out of that trade. Because I thought it was going to drop that back down below $1100 an ounce, and it hasn't done that. It hasn't done it yet. But for all the problems, for all the negative interest rates, for all the fears of inflation, gold can't get above you know 1270 or so. What I'm trying to point out here is that there is a clear tug of war between elements of the economy that used to appear that they were you know very much correlated. So generally, when gold went up the value of the U.S. dollar went down. Or when interest rates came down, the value of the U.S. dollar came down. Well, right now, those correlations have pretty much broken down. While the dollar is still significantly better than it was two years ago, it remains off the highs that we saw it hit last year, and we've seen a great appreciation in the Japanese yen. The Japanese yen right now is trading for somewhere around, say, 107 yen to the dollar. Well, if you remember last year, we'd gotten up to something like maybe 124. The euro, likewise, has strengthened, although not as much as the yen. So it hasn't put as much pressure on Germany as the pressure we've seen on Japan. Because remember, an appreciating Japanese yen hurts Japanese exports. And this is a country that's been in and out of recession like three times in the last five years. They're not stable enough to undergo those type of strains. And again, the reason I'm bringing this up is pointing out about this tug of war in the economy you may say, well, you don't care about the Japanese economy. Since things are so bad over there and they have negative rates, their money is flocking to the United States. That's keeping up your asset prices. It's it's keeping your interest rates low so you can buy Japanese cars that are imported into this country at a discount. It's keeping your asset prices high on your real estate. It's uh, increasing your net worth because it's making our S&P 500 go up to all record time highs. But what's important to remember is is that that can only happen as long as we have status quo in Japan. If the Japanese economy actually does implode, then they'll have to sell assets to raise money. They'll be pulling their money out of the U.S. instead of putting it into the U.S. That was one of the reasons we saw the market fall apart last August. If you remember on August 24th when we had the flash crash, That was only a week or maybe two weeks after China had announced that they were unexpectedly devaluating their currency by just 2%. Now, you've heard me say oftentimes in this podcast that I believe that if things stay the way they are, China is going to have to devaluate their currency, you know, 20, maybe 50% just to keep them competitive. That's on a currency basis. That's to help them get out of the massive leveraging and debt that they have. And also to help them to keep their labor costs low so that they can compete in a manufacturing economy that's being dominated by, by robots and automation and you know computer type efficiencies that don't put a large value on cheap labor. So I think China could see its economy go into a real death spiral and to get out of that again they'll have to devaluate twenty to maybe fifty percent. Think of what kind of an impact that would have on our stock market if just a little 2% devaluation in their currency caused a flash crash last August. And what I want to stress here is, is, like I always say, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I can't do that, but neither can anyone else. And so while I don't know whether the shock to the system will come from China or whether it will come from Brazil or whether it will come from Italy, who knows, for all I know, the shock to this system could, could originate in Florida. Maybe there'll be a Zika virus you know, outbreak, a, a real pandemic, it'll spread throughout the southern states in the U.S. We have no way of knowing when or if a shock will come to the system. What I want to point out, though, is that if one does occur, the U.S. market right now is priced for perfection. We're priced for oil prices to stay around $50 a barrel. We're priced for interest rates to stay below 1.7%. We're priced for lots of free money for corporations to keep buying back their stocks and negative interest rates in Europe and Japan and places like that so that foreign money floods to the United States and keeps our asset prices artificially high. And as I said, I can make the argument that this market will go up to 2300 in the S&P 500. I currently have thir- about 30% of my portfolio invested in the market. If the market continues to go up, I'll be looking for opportunities like I've, I've been taking. You remember a couple weeks ago, I sold Max Linear. I held that company for maybe three weeks, was able to lock on to a nice profit of, oh, I don't know, something maybe 13.5%, 14% over a few weeks. Now generally, when I swing trade like that, I like to get a 20 or 25% profit. I'm not taking that chance in this kind of a market. I'm holding on to Apple stock right now. It's up about 9% since I purchased it. I haven't sold that yet because I want to see what happens with their with their technology conference conferences happening this upcoming week. We're getting close to the new iPhone 7 launch, I think, in September. So I think that maybe it still has some time to run. Some of my other investments not doing as well. Starbucks down probably 2.5%, Disney down probably at least a percent and a half. So I believe in this market enough at this point to have maybe 30% of my portfolio invested. But not more than that. In this kind of an environment, I want to proceed very cautiously. And as I've always talked about, I'm watching those moving averages, particularly the 100-day moving average. Now, we've been above the 100-day moving average on the S&P 500 since around March. That's a very good sign. Even with the most recent pullback this past week in the S&P 500, it's still above its 50-day moving average. Both the 50-day and the 100-day moving averages on the S&P 500 are moving up. Those are good signs. And while I do concede that, yes, this market could go to 2,300, I still see the huge potential for a catastrophic loss, and I don't want to put more than 30% of my my portfolio into this market. Now, if things change, I might up that a little bit. I could see maybe even going to 50% under the right conditions. But it's the poor global economic conditions that worry me so much. I don't believe that the U.S. can be isolated from these these other problems for for so long or that there's no linkage between our economy and the stagnation of of global growth. Just this past week, the World Bank again lowered their global GDP rate. Now, I used a blog about this, but I got tired of it because I kept saying the same thing over and over again. So I just ignore it now. But for the last eight years, the central banks, the you know, Federal Reserve in the U.S., as well as the central banks around the world, and then these big non-governmental organizations, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, all of them keep talking about, um, you know, the U.S. economy, the local economies, the global economies. They're going to hit an accelerated rate, and that their speed's going to take off. They're going to hit escape velocity. We're going to see, you know, global growth of uh, six to eight percent. We're going to see U.S. growth of four to five percent. We're going to see growth in China and India of 10, 12 percent. Well, that's not happening. It hasn't happened. I don't think it's likely to happen. And therein lies the problem. So this week, again, as we get halfway through the year, global growth is downgraded. World Bank is now saying global GDP is maybe going to grow at 2.4 percent. You have to remember normal rates were at four to six percent. Now we're barely seeing two percent growth. Same story we've had the U.S. Historically, we've generally always been above 3% during recoveries or after recessions. The country can grow at 4 know, to 8%. We haven't seen that. This economy, on average, real rate of GDP growth since the dot-com bubble blew up back in the 2000s has not exceeded 2% on average. And so when the market is priced for perfection, i become very skeptical. Because even if there isn't a major uh, real economic shock, there could be a lot of headline news that spooks the market. Look at what happens from week to week when we think the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates, or when we think they won't raise interest rates, or when unemployment goes up, or when unemployment unexpectedly goes down, or when Donald Trump gets the nomination to, to the Republican Party or whether the polls show that Great Britain wants to stay in or out of the European Union. I mean, these little things are drastically driving the market. And so while I continue to look for opportunities in the U.S., and while I think that it is also by far the safest and the best opportunity, not only in these times, but in general times, I also continue to look overseas. And again, this is a tug of war because is it good news or is it bad news that these other markets are doing so poorly? I mean, if the U.S. is at such high rates, should maybe we be taking some money off the table and investing in economies that haven't done so well? And and it isn't that they're not doing as well, but they just don't have the value expansion that we've had in the U.S. Many of our blue chip stocks are trading at over 20 times earnings. Maybe there's some better opportunities outside the U.S. While the S&P 500 is only, say, 1.5% off its all-time high, the German stock market is down by almost 17%. Japan down by almost 12 London down by nearly 19%. China Shanghai index still down about 50%. So are these opportunities to invest outside the U.S. where valuations are so much lower? Or is this just another harbinger of bad things that are going to eventually come to our shores? I don't know, but let me point out one thing, and this is something I don't know that I've even ever talked about on the podcast. I've talked about it quite a bit in private meetings, and that's Bitcoin. I've been watching Bitcoin now for about four years. It started out as a novelty, and like any fad or any IPO that comes out that has a big story and a lot of hype, but no substance to it, well, Bitcoin did a hockey stick move up and then it totally fell apart. But I've kept my eye on it. I've been intrigued because of the aspect of not only the cryptocurrency, but what can be done with the blockchain technology. And it's really that blockchain technology that's one of the reasons that I'm optimistic about the future and how the cost of things can continue to go down, efficiencies can go up, and overall how that can be a benefit for mankind. You see, with blockchain technology, it can do many things. One thing though that it can do, it can make a currency instantaneously redeemable. Now that's different from what happens with the current system. That's different than what your ATM card does or what Visa or MasterCard do. I'm not going to go into that in this episode. I I, really don't want to digress into all the advantages and disadvantages and the potential future of blockchain and Bitcoin. Uh, maybe down the road, we'll come back and do an episode on that. But for now, what I want to point out is that the blockchain technology has proved that currency can be made instantaneously redeemable in a digital format, just like music uh, it can be you know, done in MP3 files and you know, videos can be transferred across the net at, at virtually no cost. Well, that has now happened with currency. That's a big game changer. And that's just one of the aspects of the blockchain technology. And as it stands now over the last four or five years, Bitcoin has proven that they are the major brand in that evolving technology. Now, that can change. And, and again, that's why I was skeptical of it early on. And why I would have never put any money into it back in the early days of, you know, say 2013, it was just too new. It was too unknown. It was like an IPO. But an interesting thing happened with Bitcoin. And again, I'm not going to get too much down into the weeds, but I want to point this out as another key concern that I have about the overall global economy. Bitcoin peaked in 2013 at somewhere in excess of, say, $1,100. I don't remember the exact exact number. eleven, twelve hundred dollars $1,200. That was the peak of Bitcoin in its heyday. Like all fads and gimmicks, it collapsed. But what was interesting was in early 2015, Bitcoin started to consolidate and stabilize. And for the most part, it reached an equilibrium of around, just call it $250. Just we use that for round numbers. That was a good baseline for it, and it pretty much held that low. And by the fourth quarter of 2015, we saw Bitcoin starting to rise. In the beginning of November of 2015, Bitcoin was trading right around $230. It closed out the year around $430. It's currently at almost $585. Since the beginning of January 2015, it's up something over 80%. And yet, this is at a time when we've seen major challenges in the commodity markets, in the stock markets, huge slowdown in all international trade. And yet, this unregulated currency has done so well, I think we're at the point now where we really have to ask the question, is Bitcoin replacing gold as a currency hedge? Now, that's a rhetorical question. That's where I want to in today's episode, but I bring this up for a very specific reason, and it's to point to the fact of the major global economic uncertainty and turmoil that is out there. You see, while everything else is virtually stagnant, Bitcoin is rallying and has rallied hard over the last 10 months because I believe it's benefiting from all the capital flights. It's benefiting from all the money that's leaving China. The money that was either illegally or or corruptly earned either through the Chinese Communist Party or the illegal private companies there. They're afraid of the yuan devaluating or they're afraid of a further crackdown by the government. And so the capital is fleeing China. I think a lot of it's ending up in Bitcoin. The negative interest rates in Japan and in the European Central Bank, well, as I said, people don't want to keep it there, so it's coming to the United States. But where else is it going? It's currency that's fleeing Japan, it's currency that's fleeing Europe, and I think it's ending up in Bitcoin. We're seeing a major ineptitude of governments where they're out banning currency, right? The the Europeans are getting rid of the 500 euro bill because they think that that's going to help them contain capital controls and that's going to cut down on crime and terrorism and all this illegal movement of money. But at the same time, technology is way ahead of these governments. Bitcoin wouldn't be trading right now for almost $600 if it wasn't being chased by all this global currencies leaving Europe, leaving China, leaving Japan. And while I'm encouraged by the technology and the aspects of what we can do with cryptocurrencies and with blockchain technology, what worries me is that the policies from the Federal Reserve and the central banks to lower interest rates to spur further consumption and further debt leveraging of the economy, it isn't working They've played out that card too many times. Money is being hidden and being sheltered in mechanisms like Bitcoin. And if there is a shock to the system, if there is a further lack of confidence in sovereign governments or in currency or in central banking, or if there's another big hit to commodities like petroleum and gold, well, when people start to panic and they start to pull their money out, where are they going to put it? A lot of it may end up in something like Bitcoin. That's money that won't come into the United States assets. That's money that won't come into the S&P 500. That's money that will be pulled out of our real estate bubble. That's something that I think you should at least be aware of. And it's a reason why right now I remain only 30% invested in the stock market. So I'll leave you with that thought. Until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano, wishing you the very best of returns.